This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. On the programme this week, young people are almost absent in our news media these days, but this week, stories for kids, made by kids, are back. We ask the brains behind Kia Kids News. Is news really a thing for kids today? I mean, look at Trump and, and COVID-19 and these crazy adults going mad. Our kids are probably looking at them going, whoa, that is, that is crazier than, than Gumball, you know? Now, these days, of course, a lot of the news is pretty bleak, but the Kia Kids News reporters aren't afraid to tackle today's number one topic. Today we have an exclusive interview with a Year 7 student from the school, a girl with a first-hand account of what it was like at the centre of the pandemic. Also, a possible conspiracy on the postponed election, which didn't quite pan out on talk radio this week. Am I getting into wild conspiracy theories again here? It, it, it begs a question or two, doesn't it? But first, keeping the border in order became the big issue in the battle against COVID-19 this week, and reporters who raised tough questions about that ended up copping flack. New Zealand First is welcoming the deployment of more soldiers at the managed isolation facilities, saying it is something it's been calling for. But it says the Defence Force could be used even more, and bases around the country could be converted into COVID-19 quarantine facilities. That was Corin Dan introducing RNZ's morning report on Thursday, the day New Zealand First and National released their border protection policies for the upcoming election. And the government, under severe pressure over testing and security lapses, announced its own tweaks to the current regime. And while New Zealand First did indeed welcome boots on the ground to bolster the security of isolation and quarantine facilities, the party's defence spokesperson, who's the current Minister of Defence, Ron Mark, didn't seem to welcome some of the questions about that on Morning Report from Susie Ferguson. Do we not already have military rigour uh, within the quarantine with Air Commodore Darren Webb heading it up? Well, it depends at what level you're, you're talking um... If you're talking about the, the top end uh, with Darrell, uh, with uh, Digby himself, uh, it's very clear, highly professional officer and very experienced. But while Ron Mark said he had confidence in the officers in charge, he wasn't quite so confident about the civilians keeping guard. If you get right down to the bottom end, we're dealing with a person who might be 19 years of age and has only just been employed last week and has been paid a minimum, uh, an absolute bottom line wage and required to bring their own lunch along. So the security guards who are actually doing the work on the ground are the ones where he's not been able to bring that rigour in? I think it's, it's uh, across the board. And I think also, you know, to be fair, there are those of us who said right at the outset that um, we would need this level of rigour, discipline and control of our personnel. Now, going military would seem to be a good way of getting that. And on Morning Report, Susie Ferguson asked, would the 500 real soldiers... Have guns? No. <laughs> why, would, why would New Zealand troops be armed within New Zealand? That's a, such a ludicrous proposition. Why is it ludicrous? It well, if people think of soldiers, told, I think they would probably think of a soldier with a gun, wouldn't they? Well, you do, clearly. So, no guns then. And then Ron Mark went on to say this. A security guard, ironically, a bouncer outside of a pub in Christchurch, has more power than a soldier does. And suddenly, soldiers doing security didn't seem quite so much like a guarantee of the greater rigour and discipline that Ron Mark had talked about. But it's far from the first time that plans which seemed sound at the time for border control turned out to be not so solid. 
For example, last June the government announced that all border workers would be tested for COVID-19. But NewsHub's investigations editor Michael Mora recently revealed that fewer than half of them had been tested by the 3rd of August. And the heat has been turned up on the powers that be after the confirmation that community transmission returned almost a fortnight ago. Some journalists have had tough calls to make on that too, including TVNZ's Pacific Affairs reporter Barbara Drever. The morning after, four members of a South Auckland family tested positive. Barbara Drever was live on breakfast on TVNZ1 in Witty, saying this. Well, what I can confirm, absolutely devastating for the family. I can tell you that what we are looking at is a Pacifica family based here in South Auckland. After that, online condemnation and abuse directed at Barbara Drever began almost immediately from those who objected to the way she singled out the family as Pacifica. But on the One News Now website the next day, Barbara Drever insisted that, in her own words, it would have been the absolute peak of irresponsibility not to. Pacific families do not live in isolation, to not share the information that the affected family was one of our own and interacting in our community circles for days before being tested was unfathomable. My business is not to keep information hidden or censored because people might be upset or feel targeted. People's lives are at risk. There is too much on the line for tippy-toeing around people's sensitivities. And Barbara Drever isn't the only journalist who's copped flack for the calls made recently covering the outbreak. During a daily COVID-19 briefing last weekend, a NewsHub reporter put this question to the Director General of Health on behalf of NewsHub's Michael Mora. Sorry, can we just circle back to the testing? Um, there have been repeated failures of the testing system under your leadership. Shouldn't you take some responsibility for what's happening in off your resignation? Well... Uh, I think the Minister's traversed this very well. I don't think there has been um, uh, failures of our testing system in this country. And not for nothing did Michael Mora want Dr Ashley Bloomfield's response to that. Michael Mora has also been condemned online for that, as he told listeners on Magic Talk Radio last Wednesday. I've been criticised for just doing my job. You know what's really annoying about the whole thing is half the time on social media people are complaining that journalists aren't doing their jobs properly or asking the right questions. And then as soon as um, someone like myself sends some questions to our gallery staff and we're, we're, you know, we're asking some, some, some questions and we're revealing um, failings like we did last week um, with the lack of border testing, then I get criticised for, um, for asking questions of the Director General and the Health Minister. I mean, that, that's what we're there for. I'm, I'm not here to make friends. Now, Michael Morrow was at pains there to point out that the online attacks were coming from the public, not from the media, but lately some media critics have condemned the COVID-19 media coverage. Last month, the former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said that after the nationwide COVID-19 lockdown, many in the media had reverted to what he called attack journalism and were guilty of amplifying political culpability. And so did Gordon Campbell last Thursday on scoop.co.nz. He accused parts of the media of knee-jerk negativism and catastrophizing the current problems. We seem to be hyping ourselves up over our failings as if total chaos reigns at the border. True, some human failings have been evident in our responses to these unprecedented events. Once detected, though, they are being fixed. Even the lapses in the testing of border staff has been fixed with so far. Nothing like the dire consequences observed elsewhere. Gordon Campbell pointed to an 11-minute grilling of the military man in charge of quarantine and isolation, Air Commodore Darren Webb, on RNZ's checkpoint last Wednesday, in which he pointed out that a fair bit had actually 
gone right. Um, up until now, we've successfully managed to reintegrate over 40,000 people back into New Zealand, Lisa. So, um, so what we're saying is it's a really robust system. And I guess I'll just take this opportunity to remind everybody who's listening, both inside those facilities and New Zealanders at home, that, that personal accountability lies at the very heart of defences to our uh, protection against COVID. It's only logic to, logical to expect things and minor things to go wrong all the way through. And, uh, and we're finding that, but we'll fix them as we go. So are the reporters who have been zeroing in on the flaws and demanding accountability really serving the public interest? This week, Hayden Donnell asked News Hub's Michael Mora about the fine line between scrutiny and the risk of undermining efforts that have been mostly successful so far, whether it's by good luck or good management. Kia ora, Michael. Welcome to Media Watch. Yes, thanks for having me. So just first off, can you explain why you asked or you got a proxy to ask the question that you were criticised over so much this week? Why did you ask Ashley Bloomfield whether he should resign? Well, I think there's been a very clear failure to implement a key government strategy um, after more than two months ago it being announced on June 23. I asked that question on the basis that, in my opinion, there has been um, continued failures by the Health Ministry to implement policy, to give straight answers to the public on key issues. I absolutely stand by asking that question. On August the 3rd, Minister Chris Hipkins said these workers, that we do have a testing programme in place for all these workers. Dr Ashley Bloomfield supported this comment also on August 3rd. And the day before that, the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, said the workers are being tested all the way through. So these statements build a narrative that makes the public think officials are well across testing at the border and of isolation staff. And as we know, that could not be further from the truth. It wasn't just over this particular misconceptions that they've promoted at 1pm. You've actually reported on the flu vaccine, shortage of that in health clinics. Uh, You've reported on the lack of PPE uh, in in health clinics, community care facilities. And this is is what you see as part of a pattern Yes, I think there has been a a pattern of failures on several issues. This goes for reassurances over supplies and distribution of flu vaccine, swabs and PPE. And the issue here is that it's not fair on the GPs and nurses around the country who are tasked with implementing such strategies. If the Director-General is saying, as he did earlier in this response, that there's no issues with the distribution of swabs and flu vaccine and that we have plenty of PPE and doctors around the country are telling me that they can't get it, then that's a problem. And if the main distribution company of the flu vaccine is sending out emails, which I obtained, telling hundreds of doctors in Auckland that they've run out of stock, quote, while the DG is saying we have millions of doses, then that absolutely clashes with the constant reassurances we're getting from the top. And this has been a pattern. So I absolutely stand by that question of asking the Director-General whether he should take any accountability over this most recent failure and consider resigning. Journalists uh, at News Hub, sometimes in the political gallery, have been accused in the past of what's colloquially called scalp hunting, uh, just looking hunting for these resignations. Was that what you're doing here? It is not about scalp hunting. It is about doing our job. And that job is to not just reiterate and repeat what is said at one o'clock, but actually dig into what's being said. And if we come up with evidence or information um, that counters that, then we must have the ability to test that. And that is a journalist's role. And some quarters in the public have been um, upset at some questions, but 
this is what journalists do, and I think we should be keep, keep doing this. Do you think that the part of the resistance, though, is because of the popularity of Ashley Bloomfield and the respect for the job that he's done in these 1pm briefings, where he seemed to be calm and clear and in control? Do you think that the resistance to these calls is because of that affection for Ashley Bloomfield? I think to some extent Dr Ashley Bloomfield is idolised and celebrated um, by many people in the country. He has stood up in the public as being this person who is almost worshipped now. He's on television every day at one o'clock saying things that everyone's lives and livelihoods depend on. But the danger with holding him up as a hero is that we must remember that he is accountable for this response. He is highly paid. He is the top public health official in charge of this. And if he is giving messages at one o'clock that do not stack up, if he is giving messaging that is not transparent, then we must be able to ask critical questions of him. And that's really important. So I think we must, as New Zealanders, be cautious not to just celebrate and idolise Dr Bloomfield, but actually remember that he is accountable for this response. Look, I, I, I'm not saying Dr Bloomfield um, hasn't done a good job. All I'm saying is that there needs to be more transparency. You can't stand there and say that you've got a testing program in place and all these workers are being covered because we know that that's not true. This information about failures is not being willingly offered up in a transparent way by those in charge. What do you make of uh, criticism, There's, I think, of Gordon Campbell, among others, that, that media or reporters like you focus too much on the negative and not on the generally successful running of these managed isolation facilities, you know, which have a population the size of a small town and a quite a complex thing to run? I haven't actually seen that uh, criticism. But what I would say is that I don't think Gordon is speaking daily with frontline health workers who are working in this response. And I am every single day, and they are telling me what's being said at one o'clock doesn't stack up. Do you feel any pressure from that public opinion, that, that criticism that you do receive? You're a commercial news organisation. Obviously, you do have to appeal to an audience or otherwise you don't survive. Look, I, I don't. My, um, my team at News Hub, including the managers, have been incredibly supportive of my journalism. They know that I'm doing the right thing. Um, of course, I read some of the negative comments. But like I say, our job is not to make friends. I guess there's a degree of pressure when people are commenting on Twitter saying, oh, well, I've looked back at Morris' stories and he's basically been critical the whole way through. And if we're not getting it right, we have to fix it. That's where journalism becomes such a powerful mechanism in this, is if you do good journalism, you can enact change. And that's exactly what I've done with my work and I'll continue doing it. How much of your negative feedback do you think comes because you kind of get lumped in with a lot of the partisan commentators that are pretty relentlessly critical, no matter what's happening? Uh, do you think that that makes your job a little bit harder? Yeah, potentially. I mean, there's always a difference here between you know commentators um, or presenters and then reporters who are building news stories and reporting every day. Um, but... Just to pick up on that negative feedback, 
when I first broke the story for News Hub about the border and isolation staff not being tested, um, yeah, there was a fair amount of criticism. After the government acknowledged they had not got it right, suddenly that criticism started to disappear. And by and large, the comments I've read on social media have been supportive. How do you feel personally about commentators taking your reporting and catastrophizing it? So people like maybe Kerry McIver saying that everything is a failure at the border and we're destined to become a glory avail of the South Pacific. I report the facts and I think if commentators are going to make such comments, I think you just got to treat those with a bit of caution. I mean, catastrophizing uh, my reporting is not terribly helpful and certainly in my reporting I haven't done anything like that. I stick to the facts and don't offer up any sort of opinion outside of that. Look, I think there can be a, a risk in that because it, it can potentially build up anger or frustration even more so among the public. But look, these are talkback radio shows we're talking about. Some of these presenters will take my reporting and have opinions. You know, it's up to them to convey those opinions in a responsible way. Whether or not it's always responsible what's being said, I mean, that's up for ordinary New Zealanders to make that decision. Now, there's one criticism that has actually been levelled at journalists throughout this health crisis, which is that actually uh, there is a danger that you could be undermining trust in public health officials during a pandemic, and maybe that could be counterproductive. If we are going to put a story out there, you know, it has to be supported by good evidence if it is critical. But of course, that's what we always do. I would say what is undermining trust and confidence is the lack of transparency from our top health officials. Not my reporting, or not anyone else's reporting. We're just doing our job. Some of the people who are criticising me are ill-informed. Some of the criticism is just completely deluded, that I'm getting um, paid cash by some politicians to find holes in the system. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's just investigative journalism, is what, is what it's called. Thanks so much for joining me, Michael Morrow. Yeah, no problem. Thank you very much. That was News Hub's investigations editor Michael Morrow talking there to Hayden Donnell. And you can hear more of that conversation in the online version of the story. Just go to the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in your podcast feed. I can report that the Learning From Home TV channel will resume uh, from 9am to 1pm on weekdays. They'll be back on air on Monday, so you can expect to see Susie and Karen back on screen uh, as a result of the extension of Level 3 in Auckland. That was the Minister of Health Chris Hipkins last weekend announcing that TVNZ is bringing back home learning TV with more educational and entertaining stuff for their kids on TVNZ's Duke channel between 9am and 1pm until the end of this month. Now, interestingly, the minister also said that the feedback on the first round of lockdown TV was that there was a fair bit for the younger kids to watch, but not so much for the bigger kids. And that isn't a new problem here in New Zealand. As we heard recently here on Media Watch, a New Zealand on-air review of what kids watch and where found plenty of programmes for infants, toddlers and juniors, but older primary school-age kids are poor cousins by comparison. And they're almost entirely absent in our news.
But one effort to cut through that last year was Kia Kids News, short news-style reports by and for kids in video, hosted by Stuff and TVNZ, with public funding via New Zealand On Air. Kia Kids News was the brainchild of producer Luke Nola, whose science discovery show Let's Get Inventin' has won awards and been screened overseas. But Kia Kids News was designed to get Kiwi kids from 7 to 11 years of age involved in current affairs. And it breaks new ground by getting them to pick the issues and, with help from real journalists, report and produce the stories themselves as well. The more fun you have making your story, the better it will be. Good luck, happy shooting, and seriously, don't decapitate your children. Sound advice there. And the first season of Kia Kids News Stories didn't shy away from the hard stuff in the news. Kia ora, this is Myron from Kia Kids News, and we're here at the Trust Stadium to find out more about the recent changes to New Zealand's gun laws. Excuse me, excuse me, sir. Um, could you tell us what's going on today? Well, today uh, we're handing our military-style guns back. Could you tell me what kind of gun you have? Uh, this is a semi-automatic 223 and that's been deemed illegal. And Kia Kids News in its first round didn't shy away also from the story it couldn't have foreseen but that it's impossible for anyone to avoid these days including kids. COVID-19 has established several large clusters of cases in the country. In Auckland the Catholic Girls School Marist College is the origin of one of the largest clusters. At the time of filming, there were 84 confirmed cases of the disease from the school. Today we have an exclusive interview with a Year 7 student from the school. A girl with a first-hand account of what it was like at the centre of the pandemic. In a recent funding round that was brought forward because of the COVID crisis, New Zealand On Air funded a fresh season of Kia Kids News, and the first stories from that appeared this week on Stuff and the Hey Hey platform on TVNZ On Demand. So this week I asked producer Luke Nola what it is that kids and curious non-kids can expect to see. Kia Kids News, which is only in its first season on Stuff.co.nz, which isn't even a kids' platform, remember, uh, is competing with um, massive brands like Moana and What Now, which is a you know, 25-year-old property. What is going on with uh, the news now? Is it more interesting than SpongeBob and Adventure Time? Are, are, are real things weirder than what we can write in cartoons? I've always kind of felt that reality is, is stranger than fiction. And whilst I like writing stories and making stuff up, the real world is definitely weirder and crazier than uh, what we can write. I mean, look at Trump and, and COVID-19 and these crazy adults going mad. Uh, kids are probably looking at them going, whoa, that is crazier than, than Gumball, you know? This breaks the mould a bit in terms of children choosing the topics that they want to cover as well as then producing and executing the entire report. Any kid in New Zealand could be a presenter and we've given them a voice. Uh, we have 132 different presenters on our show every season. Every story has a different kid presenting it. As a seven-year-old, nine-year-old, I can say to myself, oh, look, I could be on that and, and give it a go. And so we give all kids a go all throughout the regions. Last season, we couldn't get into the tiny towns. We got into the Christchurch, um, Wellington, Auckland, main centres. But this season is exciting because our crew can now come to your uh, regional town and, and do stories. Um, we're fully mobile. So um, it's a cool new development. The regions are actually really cool. The kids in the regions are the coolest kids in New Zealand. They're just authentic, funny, uh, great, not embarrassed to be on screen. And so we want to get more of that, um, the regional schools and kids on Kia Kids News.
if I was sitting here thinking, hmm, what, what topics could I pick at any given time that are, yep. are newsworthy that uh, maybe we could get a, a kid's perspective on, I could do that. But there must be things that the kids are thinking up. I mean, for example, I've seen a couple of interviews with children's books authors uh, that I'd simply never heard of, but of course we're, we're huge with them, local ones. So are there cases yeah. where kids are coming up with topics you'd never have oh, dreamed absolutely. of? Because and that's part of, our, part of our format is that we go into schools all around New Zealand and everyone has a go at being a presenter. We film them and give them a little bit of training and some tips on how to present the news. Yeah, but Luke, when it comes to the news, look, the most senior of journalists get told from time to time by their editors or executives, you know, sorry, your idea is not a good one. Go away, forget about it. Or, you know, look, good story, but you've done that bit wrong. Go and do it again. Sometimes this is galling for experienced journalists. I imagine that sort of thing could be crushing for them. Oh, totally. And it's, um, we've, we've, been very familiar now with a term that's called Bing Spiked, which is that a story is rejected by the editor. And uh, it's not that brutal, but Janine Fenwick and Carol Hirschfeld, they work closely with us to make sure that our stories are relevant and hit the mark and are ones that they want to actually run on the front page of stuff.co.nz. And we have to earn that place. Our kids have to earn the position. And we've learned the difference between a magazine show and actually what the news is and, and having hard-hitting news in our stories on an equal basis to the adult stories that are running on the front page of stuff. So, um, yeah, we've had story spikes. Kids have had stories um, uh, rejected, and that's part of journalism. That's just the reality of it. It's part of our mentorship with stuff. We are learning. Us directors are learning. The producers are learning, but the kids are learning as well. These days, uh, there's one topic that's in the news all the time. No one can avoid it. So how will the second season of Kia Kids News be addressing the topic of COVID? I mean, are you taking the approach that, look, it's on kids' minds, so we're going to deal with it? Oh, I, thought, I think it's a, a rich area, and it's we, we're look, doing a story on masks and why why don't 12-year-olds have to wear masks? Uh, we're doing a, an animation on what is genome. What is a genome? Uh, it's basically a plan for how the body is built, you know, to put it simply. But, you know, we find um, we've got a new sequence called Kidsplaining where we'll take um, what is a virus, what is what is uh, a genome, what is COVID really, how does it work, and we'll do a little fun animation. Kids own drawings in those cartoons to explain highly technical things. The measles episode, for instance, we did last year on how does the measles virus work. It's actually a pirate uh, that attacks your cell. Um, it was a fun way of, of explaining a highly scientific thing. And we did that with COVID as well. We'll do what, why does a mask work? What is happening in a mask when those molecules go into it? And there are fresh stories posted every week now as part of this season. But how is the lockdown affecting this? I mean, it's not countrywide, obviously, but uh, I guess in the region you are, Great Barrier Island, I believe. Level three conditions apply, I guess. Is this something that can carry on in a lockdown world? Oh, yeah, last lockdown, we just carried on. I mean, there's, the core team is seven or eight, and then working with Carol Hirschfeld and Janine Fenwick, and we're all working from home. The technology's out there that we can use parents' phones, iPhones, and they can film kids and then send us the, the footage, and our editors, who are also working at home, edit the footage and then have that turned around in about a week. There's all sorts of stories we can do. So um, bring it on. Bring on the lockdown. We actually have quite enjoyed it because it's been a, a whole new way of working, and I like change. I actually think it's really good, and it's it's healthy in a creative environment. When you look at older children, they're kind of almost missing in our media a lot of the time. I mean, not just primary school age, but also just younger people, teenagers, and so on. They're almost absent. Is this perhaps a stepping stone 
or a model for a kind of permanent presence that actually has young people, people as young as 7 to 11, part of the news process all the time? Oh, look, um, our vision for this is definitely to, to, to grow it and keep it going because it's been so successful. And so I think there's definitely a chance to, to extend this beyond um, where we're at. And also the age group. I mean, there's, there's two different age groups in, in our audience. The 7 to 8 and the 8 to 9, 10, 11 are two different kind of creatures, if you like, um, and two different mindsets. But we're very mindful of that. The kids these days are thinking about the news. When I was a kid, the news was boring. It's what the adults watch. But that's so different now. That's completely not the case. Uh, the news is engaging. It's it's immediate. It's in, it's inspiring. It's scary. It's all those things that entertainment is. Um, but it's real. So, um, yeah, I think to, to answer your question, definitely, this is the thing. And, and the research has proven it. TV producer Luke Nola overseeing Kia Kids News, funded by New Zealand On Air for TVNZ's on-demand service Hey Hey and Stuff, whose journalists and editors are supporting the project. And new bulletins will screen every Wednesday and Friday at 12pm at stuff.co.nz forward slash Kia. And finally this weekend on Media Watch... National Party Deputy Leader Jerry Brownlee copped flack last week for conspiratorial claims about what the government really knew and when, and there was more where that came from on Talk Radio this week. I'm in a pretty chilled and relaxed mood because I've been on holiday for two weeks. I don't live in Auckland, and life outside the big city is pretty much unaffected, apart from having to sign in at some of the places you visit. Magic Talk Radio host Peter Williams last Monday back on the air after a break in which he left his Magic Morning show in the capable hands of John Banks and then Paula Bennett, who, as we heard in last weekend's Media Watch, criticised the government heavily for scaremongering about the possibility of community transmission of COVID-19 the day before the news of the latest outbreak broke. But chilled out Peter did come back from his break with one gripe. Why do you have to give your name and number to buy a packet of fruise balls over the counter at Auckland Airport as I did last night because there was no other eating establishment open. But you don't have to sign in at a supermarket. However, Peter Williams had bigger fish to fry than his fruise balls, launching another talkback talking point for the morning like this, eventually. Uh, there was one other point that I um, was going to make, but uh, for now it is... I'll tell you what it was. Yes. Now, here's a really intriguing thing. A really intriguing thing. Now that thing was the Prime Minister beginning the adjournment speech in Parliament back on the 6th of August, like this. The Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, I move that the House do now adjourn until 2pm on Tuesday, 18 August 2020. And Peter Williams found that odd because back then, Parliament was due to be dissolved on the 12th of August in preparation for an election in September. But that was before we found out that we have COVID in the community, which prompted the Prime Minister to delay the election until October, which meant Parliament would be sitting again after all, beginning again on August the 18th last Tuesday, which, as we just heard, was the date the Prime Minister gave in that adjournment address way back on the 6th of August. And Peter Williams couldn't explain that you wonder why she said that on the 18th of August. And this was picked up by Cameron Slater, very uh, sharp-eyed and sharp-eared uh, political observer, and put the video up on his wife's web- website, on, on the BFD. 
Now, on the BFD website, that post by Cameron Whale Oil Slater said that the statement made no sense unless the lockdown had been planned a lot longer. Let's see the Prime Minister explain this one away, he wrote, under the headline, Did She Let the Cat Out of the Bag? which was echoed by Peter Williams on Magic Talk like this. Did she let the cat out of the bag uh, back then? Did she sort of know something? I mean, am I getting into wild conspiracy theories again here? It, it, it begs a question or two, doesn't it? And talk of a possible conspiracy got the audience going. Uh, Sarah writes, I am not a conspiracy theorist, but this doesn't make sense. I would sooner live with Rona than Cindy for the next three years. At least Rona doesn't actually try to kill you, writes Danny. Oh, Danny. And even one caller who did have an interest in conspiracy theories reckoned this was just coincidence. Oh, I think that's just a random... Slip of the tongue? Well, uh, look, I've got a brilliant magazine my husband gets it regularly called New Dawn, and it says all sorts of things about conspiracy theories, so on and so forth. But no, that seems a little bit coincidental, doesn't it? Well, the current issue of New Dawn magazine asks, did COVID-19 arrive from a fragment of a comet which hit China last year? However, caller Sarah was right on the case of Parliament's adjournment. Coincidence was closer to the truth, but Peter Williams continued to raise the possibility of conspiracy. It raises these conspiracy theories, because in actual fact, Parliament is going to be back on the 18th of August. That's tomorrow. Uh, But it was supposed to be otherwise dissolved as of today. So I honestly do, know, do not know what the heck is uh, going on. Did it sound like a slip of the tongue to you? And in his quest for answers, Peter Williams put that question to National Party leader Judith Collins. I didn't think anything much about it. I thought I was just, you know, made an error. But, yeah, um, well, at the yeah. risk of um, going all Jerry Brownlee-ish, <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you want to make oh. any comments on it now? No, I I think um, it is what it is now. But it isn't what Peter Williams thought it was last Monday. Every time Parliament comes to an end before an election, the Prime Minister or Deputy Prime Minister gives an adjournment speech, which begins with a motion being put to adjourn the House until a notional sitting date after the proposed date of dissolution of Parliament in order to confirm that the House cannot sit again prior to the upcoming election. And when Deputy Prime Minister Bill English gave the speech before the 2011 election, he explained the apparently illogical date like this. The Honourable Bill English. Mr Speaker, uh, for the benefit of members, I'll just explain the dates in the motion. The dissolution of the Parliament will occur at 11am on 20th of October. So this motion incorporates the notional date of the 25th of October, making it clear the House will not again meet again prior to the election. An adjournment motion can't bring a session of Parliament to an end. A session can be terminated only by the Governor-General, and this will be done by way of proclamation on the 20th of October. So, no conspiracy then for Peter Williams after all with the adjournment of Parliament this time round, just a combination of parliamentary convention and coincidence, as he might have discovered if he'd actually asked a political editor. And as Peter Williams discovered after all that... Not all of his listeners getting in touch were as concerned as he was about when the election would be held or why. I hope the election is held on the 19th of September just to hear you squirm. And with people like you and Sean Plunkett, yous are all that far up national's ass. The only thing sticking out is your shoes. Love you, Timmy. 
That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.